I love the genealogy because it shows how the story of Christ's birth is rooted in a long history. It's rooted in God's promises for thousands of years. It's, it's rooted in a line, in a promised line, a seed of the woman that ultimately came to its fulfillment in Christ. So what a, what a beautiful thing that is. Uh, this morning, we're going to take a, a, a pause in our series through John, just to reflect specifically on the meaning and on the glory of Christmas. And um, we're going to do it in something of a, of a unique way, I suppose, but one that the Bible makes a big deal of, for sure. So I wanted to start, as we often have in the past with Genesis 1, where Genesis, we know, gives us the account of God's work in, in creating, his work in creating. And perhaps we could also say his work in building the heavens and the earth. So think of God building the heavens and the earth. So on the first day, there's light and darkness, day and night. On the second day, God constructs, as it were, he, he says, let it be. He, he calls into being a vault over the earth called the sky, separating the waters above from the waters below. On the third day, God gathers the waters below all into one spot so that there's dry land and there's seas. And he called the dry land earth and the seas, the waters he called seas, and he filled the dry land with vegetation and plants and fruit trees. And then on the fourth day, God placed lights in the sky, in the vault of heaven, to rule over the day and to rule over the night and for signs and for seasons. This is God's work when, not, not, when as yet none of us were there to see it. On the fifth day, God filled the sea with living creatures and made birds to fly across the face of the vault of the heavens. On the sixth day, God filled the dry land with all kinds of animals. And then on the same day that he made the animals, he made man male and female, in his own image and likeness. Sixth day, of course, is not the climax, though. It's only the seventh day that God blesses. It's only the seventh day that God sanctifies. So there is a sense, certainly, in which we are special, made in God's image, but as far as the days of the week go, the seventh day is the one that gets blessed, not the sixth day. It's the seventh day that gets sanctified and set apart as holy, not the sixth day on which we were created. Genesis chapter 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Rest in the Bible is associated with home and house. I don't know if you ever get the feeling when you're driving home, I don't know, sometimes for me, if I've been in a busier city than Morris is, um, driving home and you just see your house and you see a place of rest, right? That's home, that's house. And so the the purpose and the destiny of this world was to be God's own resting place, 
His, we could say that it was to be God's cosmic temple, as it were. The goal of God's work, and it keeps saying God, God's work, he rested from his work. The goal of God's work in creating and in building and in constructing this universe, in which we feel like nothing, right, was to be God's place of rest in his house and his temple. So Isaiah 66 says, thus says the Lord, the heavens are my throne. The earth is my footstool. So you get the picture of this whole universe is God's throne room in which he sits. Where then, he says, is a house you could build for me? He built his, his house, as it were. Where is a house you could build for me? Where is a place that I may rest? And then in Psalm 104 we read, He covers himself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers, here's God building his house, in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. So if we picture it, God rested from his work. And when he did that, we could say that he was moving in. He was taking up residence in his world, in his temple, his resting place. Therefore, we can say that God is present in his world. If, if anyone's the, the foreigners or the visitors here, it's us, although we're not because God put us here. But this is God's world. It's his temple. He took up residence here. This is his universe. He is present here in this world. He says in Jeremiah, do I not fill the heavens and the earth? The heavens are his throne. The earth is his footstool. Okay. So, we can say, so what? Maybe that's not all that comforting. It could even be a bit disconcerting to people who feel like the tiny little insignificant human creatures that we are. I, I, I actually, this week, I, I kind of got through that part, and then I thought, wow, okay, that's, that's too much for me. And then I, then I saw this verse in Isaiah, and Isaiah said exactly what I was thinking and feeling as it were. He says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to inhabit. And I don't know how comforting that necessarily is because on the one hand, while it means that God is present everywhere in his world, you cannot go anywhere in his world to escape him. It's his house. It's his world. And yet so far we could also say that God is immeasurably remote. He's immeasurably far off because we're like little tiny little grasshoppers and he fills the universe I don't necessarily feel from that closeness although I know he's all around me and I can't go anywhere where he's not so then we come to Genesis chapter 2 in Genesis 2 we learn that the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth planted a garden in the land of Eden. 
Now Moses calls this garden the garden of the Lord in Genesis chapter 13. Ezekiel calls it the garden of God. Now we're coming a little closer to home. If the universe, this big vast place out there that the longer we go on the more vast we discover it is. If the universe is the place of God's cosmic, immense, unbounded, infinite presence, then what would we say this garden is? It's a miracle. This garden is the place of God's special, personal, intimate presence. So, the one who creates and shapes and forms and builds and calls into being in Genesis 1, is always called by his title, Elohim, God, the supreme being. Right? But the one who plants a garden in chapter 2 is called by his covenant name, Yahweh, Elohim. That's the name by which he can be known and by which he can be loved. This infinite spirit that is vast beyond my imaginings, how can I know him unless he plants a garden? Here then is the most wonderful thing of all. Genesis chapter 2 verse 8, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, planted a garden in Eden and there, what a beautiful word, there he put the man whom he had formed. When God created man, he didn't just put him on planet Earth. He didn't, just, he didn't, didn't put him on a, on a ball orbiting the sun and that was it. He put him in a garden. In his own royal garden. The garden of the Lord. Yes, God is present everywhere in his world. Seeing all. Knowing all. But that in itself is no comfort to us. This garden was the place where we could be satisfied in the special presence of our creator, God with us. It's it's there in Genesis. God with us and among us. So it's only in that light that we can begin to understand if we we grasp the beauty of that, the blessing of that, the, the miracle of that, that we can understand the weight and the burden of chapter three. And I'm just gonna read Read the account. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? And again, here is the root of all sin is the doubting of the word of God, the doubting of the truth of his word. Did God actually say? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Again, God was simply setting, setting up the relationship. We often think, oh, why did God have to make that rule? Why did that have to happen? Well, it's because all relationships must respect the boundaries of those relationships, and God is God, and we are creatures, and that rule was simply a way of acknowledging the boundaries of the relationship. That's, all it, that's what it was. It was the most reasonable thing. <laughs> it doesn't have to be reasonable to us, by the way, but as it happens, it was the most reasonable thing in the world. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. How often do we explicitly contradict the word of God through our actions, through our thoughts? He continued, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and indeed it was good for food. God put nothing bad in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not a bad tree. It wasn't a poisonous tree. It was a good tree. And when she saw that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so guilt entered the world. Brothers and sisters, this isn't simply a matter of we did one little thing wrong. Now all of a sudden, this sin is expressive of something that has taken root in our hearts. That's what happened there. Then the eyes of both were opened, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so we see shame. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. If we understand Genesis 1 and 2, this verse is devastating. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. You, you might say, in your garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so from that moment on we could say that God has been both all around us and at the same time infinitely remote and far away. We're still living in his world. The heavens are still his throne. The earth is still his footstool. He's still everywhere that you can ever go. We cannot escape him. But sin has created this gulf between us. We were expelled from his garden. So the Apostle Paul says the wages of sin is death, both physical and spiritual. And here's the question I want to ask you. If you were to define Spiritual. We know what physical death is. The separation of the soul from the body. Um, but what, how would you define spiritual death? Well, the Bible defines it for us. It is the misery of being everlastingly cut off from the presence. That's the word. From the presence of God in hell. Hell is the torment of being finally cut off from every blessing that finds its source in God. Uh, we would like to think, I suppose, as unbelieving people, that all the blessings we enjoy are not ultimately rooted in anyone, but they're rooted in God, and when God utterly withdraws himself, we're left with the beginnings of hell. There's, the Bible says there's more to hell, but that's the, that's the basis, that's what hell is. Hell at its most basic, brothers and sisters, we could say this, is God no longer with us or among us? <laughs> That's what hell is. 
That's how far we fell. It's how much we lost. And yet it was our choice. It's what we wanted. But still, God pursued us. That's love, isn't it? Still, God came after us, and it was still God's purpose to have a people among whom he would live and dwell. And so many years later, at Exodus 25, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Let the people make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. This is the wonderful If we ever had a word, a place where this word was appropriate, it's right here, the condescension. It's not big enough, is it? The condescension of God. Okay, so think about it. Okay, again, for many of us, we know this whole entire story, but but let let us grasp it. Okay, the God whose throne is in the heavens, right? Do we even get that at all? The God whose footstool is the earth is going to dwell in a tent. I don't understand that. But I don't need to understand it to love it. And later, he will dwell in the temple. And what, what is most condescending of all and most mysterious of all, he's going he's to dwell among sinful people. Just like the garden faced east in, in Genesis 2, so the tabernacle and the temple, God said, make sure they always face east. What was God doing? He was looking at what we lost and saying, I'm going to reclaim that. There was a lampstand in the tabernacle that was made in the likeness of a tree with branches and with flowers. And it reminded Israel of the tree of life that once stood in the garden. The thing I love about the gospel is it's not, it's not just some pithy little formula. The gospel is as far-reaching as the whole history of this world. It's as, it's as big as the world we live in. The walls and the doors of Solomon's temple had, were engraved with palm trees and open flowers. And so the temple, therefore, what God was saying to his people is the temple is now the place of God's special, redeeming presence among his people. See, God present with us today is different than God present with us in the garden. Now God present with us is God present to redeem us, right? Uh, it is to, to, to save us to reconcile us, to restore us. That is what the presence of God with us now means. That's what it is. Now there was an altar then. There was no altar in the garden, but now in the temple court there's an altar and there's sacrificial blood that God provided for his people. Nothing they came up with. They didn't say, oh, let's kill animals and try to appease God. No, God said, I'm going to give you blood on an altar so that I may dwell among you. The psalmist wrote of this temple in Jerusalem, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself. So the psalmist is jealous of the sparrows and swallows 
that, that, that build their nests in the temple courts and fly in and out and have access like that, right? O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house in the, in the temple courts, ever singing your praise. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Okay, obviously there's a lot of parallels between the garden and the temple, right? But there's this difference. You couldn't go in the temple. You were cut off. It's like, it's like the cherubim at the garden with the flaming sword turning every which way. It's the same way here. We're not allowed in. The people of Israel couldn't see the lampstands. They knew they were there. It was, descript- it was described in great detail. They knew the tree of life, as it were, with, with the light of life was there burning in the temple. But they couldn't go in and see that tree or that lampstand. They couldn't see the palm trees and open flowers engraved on the walls. They, they could only go into the court where the altar was, but no further. And so again, just like Adam and Eve barred, so also Israel was barred. Only the priests, and here's the thing, the people could go in, but only represented in the priest. And the priest, the priests could go in, pass into the holy place where there was, if you could have gone in, you'd see there's the bread of the presence. Okay. The lampstands, the altar of incense, and all of those things represented something. You know what they represented? They, rep- they all represented the blessings of God present among his people. That's what they all represented. You see God's desire, even though the people weren't allowed in yet, even though it was just the priests, you see God's desire for his people. And yet even the priests, when they went in, were subject to restrictions. This was good for me to reflect on this week. You know, let, let's just let this sink in for a moment. God says to the priests, uh, you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue on its hem. You shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord in his presence. And when he comes out, so that he does not die. And you can say, well, what's the big deal about bells, right? The bells were simply Aaron's constant reminder that his presence must always be announced because he is in God's holy place. And he has this sense of, I'm, I'm on dangerous ground. It was more a reminder to Aaron than it was anything God needed. Exodus 28, later on, you shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. Why? Because nakedness, we know from what we read earlier, is the symbol of our guilt and our shame. And so they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. And when they go into the tent of meeting, They shall wash with water so that they may not die. Does God really care about dirt on our body? No, no, as we'll see. He says, they shall wash their hands, their feet, so that they may not die. So we got all the bells, linen undergarments, washing with water. They were all just pictures. They were just reminders of our unworthiness as sinners 
to live in the holy presence. That's the word I want us to remember this morning. The holy presence of our creator. They were object lessons. No. No. We don't have, none of you were required to come here, right, to to wash your hands or take a shower. So it wasn't like God was saying, this is it. He was saying, here's a picture. Here's a picture reminding you of that deeper unworthiness that you have to come into my holy presence. Not only an unworthiness, but an impossibility. And so these restrictions and warnings, when we read them, and I hope when you read your Old Testaments, when you read them, you understand these were not harsh or uncaring, like this God was saying, "Ah, you can't do that, make sure you do that, let me make your life miserable. No, it was God being loving. It was his... It was his kindness to his people. He's the one saying, I want to come and dwell among you. And yet you must learn your need for a better way. Because this is not the ultimate way. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, once a year, would enter the most holy place of God's special presence. There's the mercy seat there. The Ark of the Covenant, and again in these verses we see pictures, we see object lessons pointing us to our need for a better way. So watch these verses, then look how they end. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. God doesn't want us to die. He doesn't want Aaron to die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat. Look at all the gracious provisions God made, brothers and sisters. Do you see in this the grace of God, his lavish provisions? The linen coat shall have a linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And is Aaron saying, oh, what drudgery? Or is Aaron saying, thank you, God, for giving me this way? Are the people of Israel saying, thank you for this way into your presence? Albeit still with walls and barriers still only through one who represents us. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord. (laughs) Would you be making a study of this? Would this be the study of your life? If you were Aaron. Yeah, and would it, be a, would it be a terrible study for you? Or would it be the joy of your life? Sometimes I think when we come to our own Christian lives, we don't have all this, we do, but do we make it a study? Do we make it the study of our lives? What it looks like to come into the holy presence of our Creator. He shall take some of the blood of the bull. I might have missed where I was. Hopefully you can find me there. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. 
And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And because of their transgressions, all their sins, and so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. We see a tension then, right? On the one hand, God has put his dwelling place, the place of his special presence, in the midst of his covenant people. He's tenting among them. They've got all their tents, and his tent is there in the center. That was the source of their blessing and their joy. On the other hand, God's presence remains a holy presence, a consuming fire. And therefore we, we in our sinfulness and our uncleanness, cannot enter that presence. And so when you looked at the temple, okay, what were you supposed to think? What, what does this mean to me? Well, on the one hand, it's, it, there's a negative aspect to it. The, the temple was a constant reminder of what we lost and why we lost it. The temple was a reminder of what we had, what we don't have, who we were and what we're not now. But the temple was also then a constant promise. See, it was both. The temple was not it. It was a reminder of something past and lost. And it was a promise of a better way. Anyone in Israel who truly rejoiced in the temple, without maybe them even knowing it, was rejoicing not in the temple, but in the promise that that temple was to them. Of God with us and among us. One day without restrictions, without barriers, without walls. And so as I just said, when the psalmist rejoiced in God's presence at the temple, remember the psalmist saying, one day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. When he says this, he's rejoicing only insofar as the temple was a type and a picture pointing him to Jesus Christ. That's where his joy originated. And so we read now again, as as we read earlier from Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God. And if I could put all the emphasis on that word, with us. So what does it mean? What does it mean when a virgin is with child? What does it mean when the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit? (laughs) What does it mean when the child is said to be the one who will save his people? Not just from some foreign oppressor out there, but from their own sin. Well, it means this. God has come to be with us. With us, not simply as he was once in the garden. No, now he's come to be with us to save and to redeem and to reconcile and to restore It means that the God whose throne, if we could bring it back to Genesis 1, where we began this morning, it means that the God whose throne is in the heavens, whose footstool is the earth, has come to live among us and to open again the way into his special presence, that garden presence, only better. So we read in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And this Word became flesh, and dwelt, or tented, or tabernacled among us. And John says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what does it mean? God with us and among us. That's going to be the phrase in in the choir piece that we sing in a moment. God with us and among us, though. What is that? Okay, It is not just a baby in a manger. It's not what that is. Yes, he was with us and among us in a very... Uh, external way at that time, but that's not what God desires by with us and among us. It's not even a man walking on the streets of Galilee and Judea. That's not God with us and among us. That's not the fullness of what this is. There were many people who walked by Jesus on the streets and never knew what it was to have God with them and among them. The baby in the manger then was the promise That God was about to open the way into his own holy presence. Where there's no more walls and no more barriers and no more restrictions and no more threat of death. We know that Jesus was made in every respect like us. Beginning with his conception in the womb of Mary. 
He was conceived and formed in her womb. He was born into this world as, as a baby, the same as everyone else. He grew up through all the stages of childhood. He was a 10-year-old. He was a 15-year-old. He was a 20-year-old. He grew up into adulthood. He knew what it was to get hungry, to be thirsty, to be weary. He was tempted in all things in every category. I want to be careful. He was, not, he, he was tempted in all the different categories and tried even as we are yet without sin. And then, as we're coming to in the Gospel of John, he was lifted up on a cross to die. But since this Jesus is also the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell... Therefore, when he died, it was a death not like anyone else's. It was a death that had infinite worth and it had infinite value as a payment and a satisfaction for you, for your sin and for mine. So Matthew tells us that as Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then Matthew is fond of this word, behold, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. No more walls. No more barriers separating God from his chosen covenant people. And here's the fulfillment then of the prophecy Isaiah gave us in chapter 51. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness he will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and sound of a melody so God with us God among us isn't just a baby in a manger it's Christ in us. It's Christ in us who by grace repent of our sin and put our hope and our trust in him. In Christ, crucified and resurrected and through the Holy Spirit that he sends to indwell his own. God is with us and among us now, saving us, redeeming us, reconciling, blessing. And here's the the wonderful thing, brothers and sisters, he's with us now. He's in us now. He is among us now in a unique and special way here in his temple. But he is also, through his presence with us, fitting us ultimately for the consummation of his special redeeming presence with us in a new creation. So listen now. This is is a promise. This is a verse and a promise that I think oftentimes can be lost on us, but maybe now it won't be. Um, Maybe now you'll say, wow, what a beautiful promise. Revelation 3. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And what's, what, what's the point of describing us as a pillar in the temple? Well, he goes on to, to tell us why in a moment. It's because pillars never go anywhere, right? They stay there forever. 
<laughs> and that's, what, that's the promise. He says, never shall he go out of it. Never. Think then what that promise must mean. For some, for the unbeliever, that promise has no enticement to it. That promise doesn't necessarily have, have any joy to it, any, any attraction. But to those in whom the Spirit of God does a work, when he does that in us then, we can say with the psalmist, when we hear that promise, we say, oh, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, yes, faints, to be where you are in the courts of the Lord. A day in your courts, the psalmist said, is better than a thousand elsewhere. If a day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, what must it be to never, ever, ever, ever leave or go out of the presence of the one who put you together? who made you and formed you, who sent his son to die on a cross for sinners like we are, who calls and sanctifies and redeems and gives us every good thing in Christ. What, what must it be to be in his presence unceasingly? So in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, the apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, no more barriers. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him just a little note here at the end but a note with big scope in Solomon's temple if you were to could have gone into Solomon's temple the most holy place of God's special presence was built as a perfect cube 20 cubits long 20 cubits wide and 20 cubits high quoting from Kings We remember that only the high priest could enter that place only once a year on the Day of Atonement. But now, what we just read, the home of all God's redeemed is the New Jerusalem, a city that's represented to us in the book of Revelation as a perfect cube. In the words of the Apostle John, its length and width and height are equal. What does that mean? It means, means what we would never dare to say unless God revealed it in his holy word. It means that one day, the redeemed will live forever in the personal presence of the creator God who, in the fullness of time, came into this world as a baby.
lying in a manger. God with us. Yeah, those are, those are beautiful words. Heaven is where everyone knows. You, you want to know what, what is heaven? Well, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know, but we know this. Heaven is where everyone knows what it is. Everyone in heaven will know what it is to speak these words in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And truly, the Christian, even today, who has known God with us, Christ in us, we also know, not to the extent we will then, but we also know what it is to say, in your presence there's fullness of joy. I want to ask you this morning, is this the heaven you are longing for? Is it the heaven that I am longing for? Is this the heaven, not only that you're longing for, but that you know is yours, even now, through repentance and through faith in Jesus Christ? How good then it is to just confess with the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4. On this, our Christmas celebration, there is no other name under heaven given. I love the word given. Among us, among men, by which we must be saved. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we, have, we, we, can, we can speak of such unspeakable things. Thank you that we can, we can understand and fathom such ultimately unfathomable things. Thank you that you have come to dwell among us and with us. Thank you that though we had sinned, that though we had rebelled, that though each one of us had gone our own way and were justly and rightly expelled from your presence, that you have reclaimed us. You in your, in your love have come after us and called us back into your holy presence. Father, I pray that you would, you would so work in the hearts of each one of us that all of us who have come in repentance and faith to the Savior, Jesus Christ, that we, that we just rejoice at, at the thought of what it means to be in the presence of you and of you who have done all that you have done, who have made us, created us, redeemed us, promised us. We thank you. We give you glory and I also pray that for all here perhaps who have not repented, have not believed, who still doubt your word, who still question your goodness, who still have not come in true repentance and faith, that even now you would so work in their hearts that they would see the glory and see the beauty of all that you have done and the way that you have provided. 
and that they too will be able to share in the joy that we know. Lord, we pray this. We ask now that you are continue, that you are glorified in the singing in all that we do here in Jesus' name. Amen.